2: Alright, hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, Guy Jeans, and I want to thank everyone for listening and supporting the podcast. We are actually starting season number two, episode number one today, which is awesome. And if you guys are enjoying the podcast, um, please leave us a comment in the uh, comment section or even ask a question and let us know what subject you would like us to discuss or who we should have on the show and we'll try to make that happen. Um, you can leave a comment or whatever media outlet you use, but we hope that you listen to us now on Waypoint TV, which is pretty cool. So that's right. We're, uh, we're on Waypoint TV, and if you've never gone to Waypoint TV, definitely go check them out. they got all kinds of outdoor fishing and hunting shows on there as well as podcasts, and we are on there now too, which is cool. You can go to your cable channels on your TV at home, Or go to waypointtv.com and see all the different shows there. they got podcasts, fishing shows, all kinds of outdoor shows on there, which is really cool. Also, uh, if you guys uh, aren't following us on Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube, please check us out there, too. I just gave away a full-day guide trip, which is a value of $550 yesterday on Instagram, to one lucky gentleman. So that's pretty cool. We also have a new online fly fishing course at learnhowtoflyfish.com. If you have a friend, a significant other, husband or wife that has always wanted to learn how to fly fish, this would be a great gift for them to learn the basics of fly fishing from the comfort of their home or even their cell phone. The class, the course, has 46 episodes on it, so you can learn how to uh, do knots. uh, You learn about entomology, learn how to cast, learn etiquette, all that kind of stuff, and that's on www.learnhowtoflyfish.com. But today, ladies and gentlemen, I have a special guest, and it's Terry Mullen, a retired uh, fish and game warden. How you doing, Terry?
1: Fantastic. <laughs> Thanks, Guy. <A> breath. <laughs> yeah, that was quite an intro. <laughs>
2: yeah. So I, I wanted to um, have you on the on the show. One is that we're friends, and I and I, you have lots of stories, and I want to ask you about all those stories and whatnot. But you know, one of the things I was trying to remember how we met do you remember how we met
1: no i don't you don't i
2: don't oh man so do you i do i oh, was okay. thinking about that i was like i think we met we were we fished together the first time we met each other you know we went fishing up uh one of the creeks here with uh, greg Colborn.
1: oh that's right you remember that i do remember you that. caught a big old brown oh man up there don't even bring that
2: up <laughs> that's weird huh
1: that i think is... that was the first time that we met i think that was yeah yeah that was
2: probably uh, close to 20 years ago, man. Golly. Yeah. Yeah. So um, tell, us, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, like where you're from and, you know, where you grew up and all that kind of stuff. You know, we'd love to hear, hear that information.
1: Well, thanks. Uh, yeah, I actually, uh, my, uh, my parents, they met in Shafter. Uh, my mom was a uh, Native American Indian that was from the San Carlos uh, Reservation out in Globe, Arizona. And uh, they came to California for work. And um, my dad was from Arkansas. And he was kind of a victim of the Dust Bowl days where most folks from the Midwest uh, came out to California looking for work. And my dad got a job uh, working uh, for a cotton gin company and and. As, you know, Providence would have it, they met in, uh, actually a gas station there, a Central Valley Highway and Lairdo uh, in Shafter. Oh, that's cool. And, uh, so I was, uh, child number three and there was no hospital in Shafter, So I was actually born uh, born in Bakersfield. And so we were in Shafter for about a year of my life. And then my dad got a job, uh, working for, um, Uh, oil field company out there off Rosedale when it was nothing but a dirt road with potholes Uh Uh, I think it began right there where the Costco is now okay and um, so yeah my dad worked in the oil fields for uh, oil well service uh, for about 18 years and uh, then when I turned 12 he got a job working for the county up here in um, Kernville uh, for the Department of Highways and Bridges as a uh, heavy equipment operator
2: Making the roads coming in here?
1: Uh, not making the roads, but kind of the what they call the county road department now. Hmm. Uh, back then, it was I guess the um, department of highways and bridges. But yeah, I worked in the oil fields for eighteen years. Um, you know, I was chapter oildale, and so that was kind of kind of a rough upbringing. You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. we used to shop at secondhand stores, and my mom was a migrant farm worker. You know, she followed the crops. Uh, they sleep alongside Highway ninety nine, and um, when I was growing up, my dad had me watch *The Grapes of Wrath*, and he said, "Son, these are your roots. This is where you're from." Oh, wow! You know, your mom was a Native American that came out here looking for work, and you know, during the Dust Bowl days, we came from Arkansas. My dad was the son of a pig farmer, and he used to tell me, and I'd you know listen to him talk to people. Says, "You know, I grew up with a fishing pole in one hand and a shotgun in the other," uh, which <laughs> is really kind of weird because I, when I was 12 years old, we moved to squirrel valley and i used to walk across McRae road with a double barrel 20 gauge shotgun savage and then i'd go up the hill and shoot squirrel and Mm -hmm. rabbits and quail leave them in a five gallon bucket out by the spigot and then i'd go to school and then he would clean them
2: okay i was i was going to ask you if you were into fishing and hunting when you were younger Mm -hmm.
1: yeah it started when i was five my dad would bring me up here catfishing and then i shot my first 12 gauge shotgun when i was eight uh, no recoil pad. So you go fishing here at Isabella? That's well, we went. There was two places we went on vacation. If there was ever vacation and usually on the weekends, it was Pismo to fish for surf perch or up here to fish for catfish. Wow.
2: So uh, tell, tell us about like um, how you got into, you know, uh, I guess becoming a uh, warden and whatnot, but there's a lot of history before that, that I've read about you and that you were, you're working at Northrop Grumman
1: uh, yes. Yeah.
2: And what were you doing there?
1: Uh, I worked, I started out in um, in 1987 as uh, a, a sheet metal bench mechanic. Some training I got in the military. Okay. And I worked for Northrop for about 10 years. And the 10 years that I was there, I just kind of advanced through, you know, some of the different specialties. And then after I became a helicopter pilot for the uh, Army, I just happened to be sitting at a console one day. And one of the engineers came out and he says, you're a, you're a pilot, right? I go, yeah. He goes, not you come with me? I, want, I need some help. And the next thing I know, I'm sitting behind the you know, controls of the simulation cockpit of the B2. And it's like, this is really bizarre. Did you like doing that? <laughs> yeah. It was, uh, it was something I never emer- ever imagined happening. Yeah. And um, because I just started out as a simple sheet metal worker, you know, from mm-hmm. Oildale. You know, and here I am sitting behind probably one of the most sophisticated airplanes, uh, just happenstance, being in the right place at the right time. And uh, the older I get, the less I believe in coincidence.
2: Uh-huh.
1: <laughs> right. So
2: what made you become a, a warden? How did you get into doing that?
1: Well, uh, after I um, I was still in the military and... Uh, you know, as a sheet metal mechanic, I got out, and then I became a crew chief. And while I was a crew chief, I got to flying with a couple of warrant officers in a helicopter, and they're like, hey, you know, you're a pretty smart kid, you gotta put in for flight school. I go, yeah, I, I have. You know, I've applied three times, 10 years, and and they're like, well, let me show you how to do this. And uh, so I got some help from them, and I asked my mom one day, I go, mom, do we know anybody famous? Apparently, most of these people that make it through flight school, you know, they know somebody, and it's, and we all know it's not, necessarily what you know but sometimes it's who you know Uh and my mom went to Bakersfield College Um, there was a gentleman there who later became a congressman named Bill Thomas and uh, she says you know I doubt that he would even remember me so I wrote him a letter he called me on the phone and he says of course I remember your mother Uh, she's a perfect example of persistence outperforms ability every time and he says if you're anything like your mom you will do well and so we had a short interview on the phone. Eight months later, I was in flight school. And uh, so when uh, I was flying with this, uh, this warrant officer one day, he says, what are you doing for a living? I go, well, I'm still working for Northrop. And he goes, how many more bombers are you gonna build? I said, well, we're on our last one. He goes, what are you gonna do? I said, well, I'm studying zoology and I don't know. I was thinking about aerospace engineer. I was thinking about becoming a veterinarian and he says, why don't you come over to fishing or come over to the sheriff's department and fly helicopters for us? And if you don't like it, you know, you can go do your veterinarian, you know, game warden thing. Because my dad kind of put that seed in my, my mind. And so I went to the sheriff's department and flew with them for uh, about five years. And then in March of 99, I had a, uh, a crash. I rolled a brand new helicopter up on the side of a mountain in Cajon Pass. Oh, no way. Almost killed all three of us. We all walked away with bru- uh, bruises, but was it know, just a malfunction of the helicopter? Or? No, it's it's actually a long story. Oh. It, took, it took me ten years. I actually documented it all down. And, oh, okay. Um, but yeah, it was. Uh, I think it was actually providential. I look at the pictures. I got them hanging in my office, and it's like you know, I God saved me, you know, for something. Hmm. And the next thing I know, I put in for fishing game. I had applied over a four-year period, ten years, and I called uh, Mike Stone who was the game warden up here. And I go, Hey Mike. And up um, here in the Kern Valley, in the Kern Valley area. And, uh, I was a known quantity to him. He had used to chase my father around. In fact, I got a newspaper article hanging on my wall in my office. Um, illegal kill sends a Shafter deer hunter to jail for 80 days. So my dad did 80 days at Lairdell for poaching a deer. (laughs) Uh, Oh my God. And so Mike Stone.
2: So he he knew your dad and and you. Oh, he used to chase us around
1: the shores of Lake Isabella. Uh I remember one night, uh, my dad had just finished cutting up a bluegill and pinning it on his pole. And Mike Stone steps into the lantern light. And my dad got really weird. And I was like, "What's he acting all weird for? (laughs) And, uh, He's, oh, what are you using for bait? My dad's all, oh, you know, clams or whatever he said. And, and the game warden never told him to reel in his line. And they walked away. And that was my first exposure to Mike Stone. Uh-huh. And it was like, eh, if that guy makes my dad nervous. I think I want to be that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Classic. Oh, my gosh. So, uh, yeah, Mike Stone. I did a couple of ride-alongs with him. And uh, I did the application. And uh, probably a year later, they called me up. And even though I was a deputy sheriff, they still made me go through the academy. And
2: uh, Where is that? Where is the academy? It's
1: actually in uh, Butte now, Butte College. But when I went through it, was in Napa. Oh,
2: wow.
1: And when I went through the academy, um, you know, I'll be honest. When they asked me to go through another academy, I thought, you know, I've been a deputy for five years. You know, San Bernardino, that's a no-joke academy. You know, it's a high stress. And, but, hey, you know, that, that, that particular door is closed behind me. And uh, I'll do whatever I have to do. And so I went through the academy, and I thought it was going to be a breeze. But I'll tell you what, um, their academy is longer than CHP or Sheriff. And it's twenty. it was 22 weeks when I went through. We not only did penal code, but we did vehicle code, health and safety code. And those exams for the fishing game stuff, we'd have lieutenants and, um, you know, game wardens come in and teach us. And it was very cerebral. And the exams, were, like I said, were not easy.
2: Yeah, I was going to say, because being a fishing game warden, you have to know so much. I mean, you, there's all kinds of stuff that you guys have to know, not just all the normal stuff that a deputy has to learn, but all the other stuff, the, right. the fishing game regs and all that along with it, right?
1: That's right. And you yeah. will actually sit beside the, uh, um, the district attorney uh, on cases and, you know, basically describe to him, you know, this is what our inspection authority is. This is where we can look. And if we make a formal demand, hey, you know, you have to show this to me. If you don't, it's a misdemeanor. Uh, you can be arrested for it. You know, and things that you have here could be subject to seizure and what have you. But what I brought some stuff in. Yeah. Uh, in regards to, and really what we talked before the show. Yeah. Is I want to just talk about, uh, you know, it's, uh, they're full-time peace officers anywhere mm-hmm. in the state. And also game wardens are deputized uh, federal um, uh, federally deputized because the contiguous states around California, for example, Oregon and, uh, you know, Nevada and Arizona, right. Um, you know, for the purposes of the migratory bird treaty act, they may have to go in to enforce, you know, those laws, uh, for the migratory bird treaty act. And so they're not only full peace officers, they can pull you over for tickets. Uh, you can arrest people for penal code violations, health and safety violations, you know, drugs and what have you. But really what I wanted to talk about is, uh, you know, the game warden that I knew, Mike Stone, if you don't know anybody that's kind of, you know, there, it's like, well, what, what do you do? You know, right. who, who can guide me? It's kind of like the whole helicopter thing. If I hadn't mm-hmm. had uh, warrant officers and helicopters guide me, I wouldn't have known how, what strings do you pull? Mm-hmm. And so what I wanted to share with uh, your viewers is that yeah. uh, it's a uh, game wardens, the entry level is a cadet. You'll go through the academy as a cadet. And uh, they don't really pay you that much. But you know what? You're actually in training. You're getting paid for it. Uh, the academy is pretty rigorous. You know, it's not only cerebral, but it's, it's physical. It's 22 weeks. Uh, you'll have um, some specialized training as a game warden. And then you'll go through three field training officers. And you'll be with each training officer for a month. And when I went through, um, they put me with a mountain game warden. Uh, They put me with a game warden that was skilled in uh, dredging, suction dredging, uh, mining. I actually did a great case up in Kelso Valley. I mean, up on uh, Paiutes, where Kelso Creek is, Uh on suction dredging. Uh, We used to have... um, They're dredging, like, for gold. For gold. gold. Yeah, gold. Right, Right, right. And, uh, you know, there was quite a bit of suction dredging activity down in the lower uh, Kern River as well. So what they try to do is they try to match the district that you're going into to the specific training that you will receive during your field training officer program. And um, so, yeah, they'll, uh, they actually had me with another game warden that was uh, very competent in uh, tracking uh, callers for dogs, uh, bear hunting, uh, how to use two-way radios, and... Um, that's good training, man. It was great training. Yeah. I thought, uh, you know, the sheriff's department was great training. You know, when I went to the military, it was great training. But just the technical aspects of being a game warden was, uh, it was full throttle. Funnest job we've ever had. And I, I think I can speak with some degree of authority of what fun is. You know, flying helicopters, yeah. and, you know, night vision goggles, and, you know, being behind the controls of the V2, and just the, some of the things I've done. Fishing game warden, the, the adventure was, every day was an adventure.
2: I have seen you in action a few times back in the day for oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. I've seen you uh you know sneaking up on on folks, watching you and I I was in the water but I I've seen you, you know, sneaking up on folks, you know, to check their licenses and stuff, you know so fun I that's bet. the
1: great thing about <laughs> being a game warden too and like yes. a deputy you know sometimes you'll show up after the crime has already been committed and, yeah. th- and then you're there to try to put the pieces together yeah uh, you know you'll take the report from the the victim and then try to put the pieces together whereas a game warden you actually get to watch them violate and the first game warden that i was with that was a field training officer he goes terry you need to i know you were a deputy but you have deputy vision on i'm going to give you some game warden goggles and, uh, I want you to watch people lie to you and I want you to be able to detect, um, what's happening when you're being lied to. And, uh, so yeah, you watch the violation, you go down there and it's like, Hey, how's it going? You having any luck? No. And what about the five in the bush? You can't wait to get to that question, <laughs> yeah. you know, but <laughs> you, you have to take your time and wait for the guy to lie to you. And there's certain mannerisms and what have you. I bet. And there was one thing he told me, he says the, the, the toes tell, he says, and the toes talk. I go. I don't really understand what that means. He goes. If the guy's facing you with both his toes facing you, open palms, it's probably going to be believable. But if one toe's facing one way, or if the dude's not even facing you, and he keeps looking around, you know, he might might be trying to run too.
2: <laughs> so you got to read people's body language too. It's, huh?
1: it's great. Uh, it's great training. Um, I wish I'd had that when I was a deputy because I learned learned so much from these field training officers that were game wardens, these seasoned guys the body language and the gift, the gab. And they told me, you know, when I went with them, they said, your greatest tool is your tongue because you're all by yourself. Your nearest back is maybe an hour and a half away. If that,
2: I was going to ask about that.
1: And I've been in some in some shootings, you know, and uh, I've been in some situations where you really, it's the power of persuasion. You have to convince people that it's really in their best interest, um, you know, to make a good decision. Yeah. And uh, you know, When you walk into a deer camp in the middle of the night and most everyone's under the influence of alcohol and there's a doe hanging and the doe's hanging in the tree, you know, it's interesting. (laughs) Yeah, and they got guns. Yeah, and they got guns. And you think about it, game wardens, uh, hunters have guns and fishermen have knives. Right. So there is no expectation. Everybody's armed. Whereas when I was a deputy, you know, walking up on a traffic stop or what have you, you know, uh, domestic violence, you don't know if the guy's armed or not. But as a game warden. Everybody's armed and you're by yourself. What was
2: the most common thing that you wrote, wrote, people up for?
1: Uh, I would say, um, working around the shores of Lake Isabella, because I had, uh, if you think about Lake Isabella, we're, we're, we've got five bioregions come together. So we're very unique here and mm-hmm. that we have the, uh, the deserts with the reptile collectors. Uh, we have the quail hunters, the, the chucker hunters and what have you. And then, um, You know, we have the mountains where the deer hunting takes place and the bear. And then around the lake, you know, boat patrol. And now you have your fishing contacts and what have you. But just because of the sheer number of sunny days that we have in the Lake Isabella area, most of my contacts were, uh, believe it or not, no fishing license, multiple poles, destruction of evidence, you know, where they're trying to, um, you know, cut their lines, uh, dump the the bait overboard or, uh, you know, get rid of whatever contraband they happen to have but I would say the most common violations were fishing violations.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the things I, you know, getting to know you guys over the years and stuff, one of the things that I noticed is that there wasn't enough of you guys. It always seemed like there, that you guys, there was one for such a huge territory. And I just, I just didn't understand that. And because you guys have, you guys have bear season, deer season, then you have fishing season, then you have deer season and you have to, you know, go to those places, but then all these other places are getting overlooked. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that's... I
2: mean, it just seems like there should be like 10 of you.
1: Right. Right? Yeah, you know, Mike Stone, he told me after I became a game warden, he says, Terry, you have to perpetuate the myth that you're everywhere all at once. (laughs) I said, now, how do you do that? He goes, well, you know, back in the days of the 70s when we had CBs, you know, and everyone around the Lake Isabella shoreline, you know, they had CBs and, uh, you know, they would... Um, uh, it was interesting. Mike Stone's, uh, handle was a uh, mushroom. And I asked him, I go, why is it mushroom? He goes, well, you know, it's grown in the dark and it's fed manure. I'm <laughs> like, okay, that's an interesting handle, Mike.
0: <laughs>
1: but so, we had, we had a guy out here by the name of crappie kid and he would, you know, get on the radio and it's like, Hey, where are you at there mushroom? He's like, um, how I many you got in your basket out there, crappie kid. <laughs> so he said, I'm up here on, you know, Rancheria road, checking deer hunters, uh-huh. but it's, um, What I tried to do was uh, empower, uh, you know, some of the folks that uh, were really interested in preserving, you know, the resource. And it's like, listen, this is how I view myself, is that, you know, I'm a referee that can't always be on the field of play. And somebody has to throw a flag. And somebody, you know, if they throw a flag, I can see the flag, you know. But uh, what really amazed me is some people were very hesitant to get involved. Oh, I don't want to be a snitch. It's like, listen, they're stealing from you. Mm -hmm. You know, they're stealing from us. Mm -hmm. And uh, maybe somebody has to spend some time in a penalty box. And if that's what it is, then you step up and you take your lumps. And that's kind of how whenever I caught people, you know, it's like you turn around, it's like, oh, no. It's like, yeah, hi, how are you? By the the way, been watching you for 20 minutes. (laughs) So here's the deal. Uh, You have a weapon on you. I have a weapon. And uh, I can already see in your eyes where this is going to go. But. Really, I think it's probably in your best interest. Let's make a good decision right now. You want to go home. I want to go home. You got caught, and this is what's going to happen. You know, you're going to receive a citation. You may or may not lose your firearm. You're going to get to go home tonight. not going to tell your vehicle or what have you. But you basically just sell it to them. And, um, you know, fortunately, there was uh, not very many, uh, you know, where I actually had to take somebody physically into custody, unlike when I was a deputy. It's like I was arresting people sometimes um you know two or three rests a night Mm -hmm. it was uncommon but it could happen you know for a deputy it was typically you know you're arresting somebody every night but a game warden not so much so
2: are they is there a lot of people applying to be game wardens or are they having a a problem with uh, people applying to be a game warden now
1: uh you know that i don't know um and kind of going back to your question, you know, about the number of game wardens. Um, yeah. When I was in, we uh, harbored anywhere from 350 to 400. So there's 58 counties in California. So if you start doing the math, you know, that's, you know, maybe six, seven, maybe eight game wardens if you're a full squad. And it's like, well, how do you dispatch six, seven, eight game wardens throughout a county? And that's where the autonomy, the mo- one of the most attractive aspects of being a game warden, you get to work your own shift. And you put your thumb on the pulse. And you figure out where the heartbeat is. It's kind of cool. And that's when you get with your sportsmen and then you ask them, anything up here I need to know about? What's mm-hmm. going on up here? Well, you know, as a matter of fact, you might want to keep an eye on that red truck with those two guys in it. Mm-hmm. All right. So what's up? Especially during the late season G6. You know, it's mm-hmm. like that guy's up here every year. Yeah. That, you know, those, those two, you know, are up here every year or what have you. And uh, so it's letting them know. It's like, hey, somebody's got to throw the flag. Somebody's got to say, hey, there's not enough of you guys around here. I know you're spread thin, but let me help you out. Mm-hmm. And so I think uh, establishing the best possible rapport that you can with people so that they will be inclined to report it. And Mike Stone told me when I first came on, he says, Terry, he says, a game warden has many acquaintances and few friends. Mm-hmm. In fact, you will probably in your career sign up your family. Well. That was providential or prophetic. Uh-huh. It actually happened, you know, and it's like, wow, really? Yeah, you're doing this? Yeah, you did it. So I'm. this is my job. This is what I do. Oh, my gosh.
2: Yeah. So, yeah, it must, it must have been, like, in situations. I think you were telling me one time you were in an area where there wasn't any cell reception and you came up on some guys that it was kind of spooky and you you had to, like, you know, pretend like something was going on yeah. or something like that, right? Is I that, had a
1: deputy yeah. tell me one time yeah. when I was working in the, uh, the jail system um, because I told him, I said, you know, this is very unnatural for me. I'm basically a helicopter pilot, and I came over here to the sheriff's, you know, to the sheriff's department to go to sheriff's aviation. He goes, Terry, as a deputy, you're an actor on a stage. You can be whoever you want in here behind the bar gate doors. But when you step out in there, he says, a lion recognizes a lion. You're an actor on a stage. And sometimes you have to play a different part. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, "Eh, it's kind of discomforting. And so I kind of took that to heart and uh, throughout my sheriff's career and fishing game. And one of the situations I got into that you're referring to, I was down in the lower Kern Canyon. yeah, And I see four guys and obviously they're fishing and uh, there's some narcotics involved. And I'm looking at one guy and I recognize gel tattoos and I'm like, hmm, okay. Not, not, that guy's a gang member, and this guy's a gang member. And I click my radio, and I don't hit the repeater. And I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm halfway between Bakersfield and Lake Isabella. It's going to take him at least 30 minutes to get to me if I get into a fight here. You know, I think I'm going to do I think I'm going to go back up to my truck. I've already got their vehicle, got their license plate, already ran it. Um, and uh, it actually come back suspended. Like, I'm just going to go up there and wait at the vehicle. So I go to step back out, um, you know. And they didn't know you were watching. Oh, they had, yeah, they didn't, they didn't know. And so as I started to do my 180, I stepped on a uh, a twig. And the one guy flipped his head around, looked at me, and I'm like, hey, how's it going? And I pulled my radio out, and I go, hey, man, I found them. They're about 100 yards below you. I might want to start this way, but they look cool. And I put my radio away. I'm like, hey, how's it going, guys? You having any luck? Um, take a look at fishing licenses. I can already tell, sir, so you don't have a license, do you? No, I don't. Okay, I appreciate you being honest. Um, all right, here's the deal. Who's got the vehicle up there that's with CHP? Um, what? Whose vehicle is that? CHP's up there, suspended. Um, I just came down here, tried to find you guys. Most of my English are really cool. I don't want them to tow your vehicle. Whose vehicle is it? Um, I drove <laughs> it. I'm like, okay, cool. And uh, hey, do me a favor, um, since you don't have a license, I'm just gonna write you a quick ticket and let's go up to the vehicle and uh, you can settle the score with CHP. Like, all right, so we start hiking up the hill. I'm like, these guys have no idea I'm alone. So we start getting up there. And the guy's like, hey, uh, where's your partner at? I go, oh, he contacted two other people up there. He'll be alone, but uh, so I got up there, I'm like, oh, thank God, CHP must have got a call. All right, here's the, here's the deal i um, just going to write you a ticket for this suspended license and what have you. I ran the one guy and he come back with a warrant. And I'm like, oh my God. Oh, here we go. So, hey, come on over here. Let me talk to you for a second. Hey, you guys can go ahead and chill by your vehicle. And I go, hey, here's the deal, dude. You have a warrant for your arrest. Turn around and separate your feet. And the guy was like looking at me. And uh, fortunately, he wasn't the guy that was constantly asking questions, mm-hmm. but it was like, oh boy. So, actor on a stage. Yeah. And, um, my partner never showed up because I never had a partner. Right. CHP was never there because yeah. CHP never saw the vehicle. Right. And so these three guys, you know, that uh, drove off in the vehicle, you thought, man, that guy was, you know, he cut us a break. You know, he just gave me a ticket and yeah, you know, this guy over here, he had a warrant. We knew it. And he was the guy that snapped his neck around when I stepped on the twig and he knew I could tell. It's like, this you know, something's up with this guy. Yeah. And when he came back with a warrant, I'm like, yeah, that's it. But that's the whole body language thing that you learn. Right. Which is not something you can really teach.
2: Right. That's some scary stuff, man.
1: Yeah, it is. Yeah, getting fun. Some... It's a fun job, but uh, you have to be prepared. Um yeah. And something else that, uh, you know, what's the absolute worst thing that could happen? Okay, now that you've considered it, are you prepared? No? Then get prepared. And whenever you consider the possible worst-case scenarios... Then you're prepared for whatever happens. And I had an old Vietnam helicopter pilot I used to fly with. He says, Terry, when you're flying, I want you to be constantly looking out the chin bubble because when this thing quits, it's a forced landing area, and we're going right there. Always be prepared.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. I got one story. It's probably nothing, you know, that the stories I'm going to ask you about oh, here in a, a little bit. I want to tell you a story that— Everybody's you know, got their story. Well, I, you know, being out there all the time on the water— a lot is I see stuff all the time, you know, and, uh, this is well, it's it's two stories. One was when Shane, uh, Deshaun was working here and, you know, I row people down the river all the time. So I would see long stretches of the river, you know, and people fishing and whatnot. Yeah. And so I, you know, every once in a while, I I see somebody doing something, you know, and I could actually like call Shane and go, Hey, you know, Shane, you know, check this out. And you, sure enough, Shane become right through the bushes and and uh nail these people that would, you know, had 40 fish on their yeah. stringer or whatever. But the one I wanted to tell you was um uh I was uh, fishing the river and I was I was across the river on the other side of the river with two clients. And there was a guy um fishing directly across from us. And he was catching fish after fish after fish, right? And he was putting them on the stringer. Mm. And um and I just kept, you know, I was working with my clients and stuff and then I kept seeing this guy, uh, catch more fish and more fish. And then, he, but he was putting them on the stringer and I, and I go, man, this guy is like, he's catching all these fish. Something's going on here. And so I went over, I crossed the river and the weirdest thing was, and he was, he was, um, fishing with bait and stuff, you know? And I went, I went over there and I, I said, Hey man, he's all, Hey guy. <laughs> like he knew who I was. Right. And I'm yeah. like, Hey, I didn't know who he was, but he knew who I was, and I'm like, um, I go, what are you doing, man? And I go, how's the fishing? He's, oh, it's pretty good. And he had a, he had a, a fish under his foot, and he had a stringer with four fish on, and then he had another fish on. And so what he was doing was he was, he was catching a fish, and then taking the one off the stringer if it was bigger, and then putting another one on, and then he would keep one on his on his foot in case somebody walked up up on him like a game warden, he could just move his foot, you know, and let mm-hmm. that, oh, I only have four on a stringer, mm-hmm. you know, type of situation. And he go, Hey man, um, what, is it, what is that called? coaling or calling? Yeah. And so he was calling and I'm like, Hey man, I don't think that's uh, legal to do that. And he's all, you know, he went into this big excuse and like, you know, whatnot. And I'm like, Hey, uh, you know, I think I'm going to go call the uh, fishing game, man. That's not, that's not cool. You're doing that. And he's all, come on guy you know, give me a break, man. And I pretend I didn't have cell reception, but I pretended I was going right. to
1: <laughs> call you guys. But and sometimes anyway. that's all it takes. Yeah. Being uh, brave enough to even say that.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it's just, you know, it's just not cool. You know, I mean, catch your five and, and go home, you know, don't keep doing that kind of stuff. I've had other situations too, but you know, nothing like about what you're about to tell, tell everybody too, which is pretty incredible. <laughs> um, so you sent me a picture um, which blew my mind. And um, for you guys, if you guys can imagine, um, uh, it's Terry, um, the warden holding, um, I believe, Bobcat pelts. Mm-hmm. And there's, um, I don't know how many on there. It was like maybe 20. There was a total of 62. Oh, <laughs> so 62 pellet pelts. Um, and he's holding them up and there's a picture of him. And so you want to elaborate on what happened with that? that's pretty crazy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh- Bobcat trapping uh, now in California is illegal, uh, the commercialization of bobcat pelts. Uh, several years ago, it was uh, legal to actually uh, trap bobcats. And, um, you know, they had body gripping traps back in the days when Mike Stone was working. But when I came on, it was box traps.
2: And... Uh, A quick question. what? Real quickly, what, why, why, would, why do they... What do they do with these pelts? They uh,
1: these pelts, uh, actually, there is a market. Uh, there was a market, probably still is. Uh, for example, over in Russia and China, you oh, know, okay. some of these uh, colder areas, you know, on the globe, uh, if people have, you know, lots of money, then, you know, what's one of the, you look at it, you know, people drive very expensive vehicles, they have very expensive homes, they Coffee. have very expensive diamonds, and, um, you know, fur, here in the California and the United States is, you know, it's, it's taboo. You know, some people don't like to see it and you go to other parts of the country and it's like, Hey, you know, we, we, this is what we wear. You okay. know, it helps keep us, keeps us warm. So mm-hmm. there actually is a market. Okay. And everything that we do in law enforcement, as you follow the money, there's always money to be made. And that's why I think the crimes are being committed. So this particular, um, um, situation is, um, There's actually a number of them, but, um, where was this? Uh, this is, I don't want to be too, okay. Okay. Let's say, let's say it's in California. Okay. (laughs) Good. Yeah. Okay. All right. (laughs) Yeah. It's in California. Uh, And I'll just tell you, I'll just tell you this, that, um, I used to teach Bobcat dropping at the, uh, fishing game Academy actually testified alongside the, um, uh, you know the the director of fishing and game and talk to the commission about um you know bobcat trapping and um you know the necessity of you know these people were maintaining our uh, for some people it's um you know it's a heritage for them you know they grew up hunting and fishing and, and trapping and and chasing bears with with dogs and what have you and that became taboo and um so what happened on this uh, uh, particular case is uh, we have a person that uh, they were raised trapping and, you know, it's body gripping traps is, you know, that's what they do. And it's, you know, like, you know the, yeah, the clamping anything that grips the body okay and, and prevents it, um, you know, as a body gripping trap. And um, what was happening is, you know, when you when you trap a bobcat uh, with a body gripping trap, you know, it, you could it's indiscriminate traps everything you know it traps a a kitty cat it traps a rabbit it traps a a raccoon a a possum um, anything it's indiscriminate and so they went to these live box traps that have a guillotine door that shuts behind it whenever the animal goes into the cage puts its nose on the uh, the scent ball and then you know boom now you have a life whatever it is inside the trap it's like oh i don't want that you know that's a that's a raccoon that's a rabbit that's a um, and then they let it go greed gets the best of most of us and whenever there's money to be made what was happening is at this particular time the average uh, price of a Bobcat was about six hundred and seventy four dollars per person the top cat in that year was twenty one hundred dollars that's for one Bobcat I actually had people that were taking two months of leave of absence to go and trap Bobcat they were making anywhere from forty five to sixty thousand dollars in two months
2: Wow.
1: So the, you know, Smuggler's Blues, you know, the lure of easy money. Mm -hmm. And it's fun. I actually went out with, uh, you know, some guys that were, you know, trapping. I got to watch trapping, you know, Mm -hmm. firsthand. I would set trail cameras, and I got really good at tracking humans, and I ended up teaching at the academy on, you know, how to set trail cameras and how to track humans and, and how do you actually keep your feet off of the ground when you're walking out to check a trap because the trapper, he's making his money looking at the ground, and surely he's going to see your boot heel print, right? So I used to carry multiple sets of shoes in my my patrol vehicle. I wore sandals. I wore uh, you know, different types of soles. Interesting. Uh, I actually kept a, uh, a large uh, wool green um, army blanket with me. And so what I would do is actually lay the magic carpet out in front of me, and I'd hmm. walk over it. And then I would just walk right to their trap because it kind of distributes evenly your weight You go out there, you look at whose trap it is, and sometimes there's no trap number, which is a violation. It's in the wrong place. It's on private property. It hasn't been checked because you had your trail camera on it, and they're supposed to be checked, uh, you know, daily. And so I would actually start zeroing in on the very, very small percentage of people that weren't doing it right. And that's something I saw in Fishing Game, too. We used to call them the one percenters. Mm -hmm. 99% of the the folks that are out there trying to get a critter are doing it right. Mm Mm-hmm. It's the one percenters. It's the repeat offenders. Mm-hmm. Those are the people that we zero in on. And those are the people that I enjoy chasing because there's really no better thrill than chasing a two legged animal that has the same intellect as you.
2: <laughs> oh, my God. That's funny.
1: Yeah. How fun. It's fun. Oh, my God. It's the funnest job I ever had. And it was a challenge because, you know, the Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner, you right know? Right. Right, So Wiley Coyote hated that Roadrunner. Was uh-huh. always outsmarting him, and it's probably one of the reasons why it's one of our favorite cartoons. Right, because uh, how do you get the one up on somebody that's constantly out there, and you're spread so thin you can't afford to have your thumb on his pulse mm-hmm. every day? So that's where the full force, force multiplier of the uh, you know the people that are on the field to play saying, hey, you might want to keep an eye on these two guys in the red truck. Okay.
2: So how did you come across all these belts? I mean. I mean, did you just go into somebody's house and you found him, or um, can you say or no? On some, yeah, okay,
1: yeah, some I had consent, others search warrant. I'm sure. Uh, this particular uh, guy actually uh, invited me. <laughs> oh, he did, huh? Yeah. And while I was there, I'm like, hmm, interesting. And you have to keep a trapping log: date, time, and where you got it. Oh. And when you start putting date and time and specifics down, that becomes evidence, that becomes a breadcrumb. And the moment that you have a breadcrumb, now um, the two-legged intellectual game begins. Now you start putting the pieces together. And this is the fun thing about this job, is the amount of time and effort that you put into solving a case. And then it goes before a judge or a jury. Right. And you wonder. Why do people keep doing it? And it's like any other crime. It's like, if the penalty, like I told you before, early in the podcast, my dad did 80 days at Laredo for poaching a deer in Glenville. I'd never seen that in the 20 years as a game warden.
2: Wow. So something like this, this is obviously huge. Huge. Somebody like this would go do some time for sure. Right. Long time or Mm -hmm. yeah. And never be able to hunt again. I'm sure. Yes. Right.
1: Yeah. Revoked the privileges for five years. Um, um, you know some of the bear poaching that we had that was up here in our local mountains.
2: Um, I wanted to ask you about that. I, were you done with this? Um, I, I, if you're done, okay. I
1: was. I don't want to get too specific.
2: Well, I know I, that's why I'm kind of going around. <laughs> that's okay. That, but um, I wanted to ask you about these. But um, that was one of the the questions I wanted to ask you was about the the bears, the hunting the bears, and, and which is they're not doing that anymore. Are, are they? Are they still? I can't remember if they are allowing bear hunting and with
1: dogs or. Well, I retired uh, a year ago and there was um, legislation, uh legislation that was. Um, and I'll tell you, towards the end of my career. My mind wandered and uh, I didn't follow as closely as I did early in my career about sure. what was happening. And, and sure. I, I, I know that there was changes that were. Uh, They outlawed the bobcat trapping and, and, uh, and it's like, Hey, no more, you know, chasing, you know, bears with dogs and, and, um, you know, the whole train switches and you can't have a firearm in your possession during the training, you know, season and what have you. Um, But the, uh, what was happening in our local mountains is I just happened to be in the right place at the right time, which is, you know, probably Uh, A captain I worked with, uh, he said, hey, being in the field and being in just about every, you know, place you can possibly be, north, south, east, and west, in various times of the week, you're going to come across stuff. But it's important that you have, um, you know, points of contact, not snitches, but people that are concerned about wildlife to help assist you. And so I just happened to be in the right place at the right time, and I come across this guy. And... You know, I started doing some questioning and the whole body language. I'm like, something's up with this guy. <laughs> and um, so you camping up here? Yeah. Uh, where are you camping? So he tells me. I go wandering around there, start kicking up some evidence. And I'm like, hmm, this is interesting. A bear head and a cape and no meat. Where's the meat? So I uh, was going to wait down there and I couldn't get radio reception. Couldn't hit a repeater. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go back up and talk to this guy. So he comes back in. And uh, here's another thing that's kind of nice about being a game warden is that you're not really pushed for time. Like when you're a deputy, it's like, hey, it's a call to call to call. You know, you don't really have time to develop. And so I go up there, and I'm sitting there, and he shows up. And I'm like, hey, you find anything? No. And No. And we get to chatting and, you know, very conversational. He goes, by the way, if you ever have a mountain lion, you know, that attacks a goat or what have you, I'm a professional lion hunter, and uh, here's my card, and uh, I run these dogs, and, uh, you know, in fact, I used to guide, you know, a few years ago, and I'm like, okay, great, hands me a business card, and I'm like, okay, great, hey, by the way, I was down at, you know, the whole Colombo thing, you know, mm-hmm. saying, one last thing, ma'am, you know, it's like, hey, one last thing, uh, I went down to your camp, and you have a bear head down there, and a cape but no meat, where's the meat? And by the way, I noticed that your bear tag is not even filled out. It's in pencil. He goes, well, you know, I don't have, I have an eighth grade education and I'm not really good at filling out stuff. And I'm like, wait a minute, you just told me you were a professional guide, hunting bears and lions. And now you're telling me that we, we're rowing the boat backwards now. What's going on here? And um, so I was pretty new and uh, every year, half of the game wardens in the state get together a thing called uh, advanced officer training. And while I'm there briefing my lieutenant, the captain walks by and he goes, did you just say? I go, yeah. He goes, where are you from? I go off from Kern County. He goes, what's he doing down there? I go, I contacted the guy. He was up here. He's bear hunting this side. He goes, you're on the tip of the spear here. Let me tell you what's going on. We ended up launching an investigation with the DA's office. And... uh, we infiltrated a uh, bear poaching ring. Actually, made it on the field and stream. Made it on. Uh, oh, is that right? Local news. Um, actually, arrested, confiscated guns, vehicles, took it. And we had a guy that was uh, actually booking hunts, a guy that was uh, taxiderming the, um, uh, the, you know, the critters that were being taken, and then uh, somebody that was running the hounds. And it's all public information, but. Uh, yeah, the actual field stream came down and interviewed our our squad and asked us about it, um, but it was it was amazing to me the 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 depth of I would say the greed, right? And uh, again,
2: trying to sell those pelts and well, furs not, or whatever. Well, it's
1: just uh, most people don't know, but uh, bare gallbladders you know, at that time, depending on the, where you were in the black market anywhere between two and ten thousand dollars oh really you know sold in the black market for aphrodisiac oh and uh, so it was big money and there was guys that were coming up and booking hunts and paying lots of money and you know maybe they were flipping the. we we didn't get that far down the rabbit hole but we got just you know down far enough and i would say that's probably one of the most frustrating aspects of being a game warden is you and I had one game warden told me, he says, you know, Terry, you never, ever get a 100% conviction on anything. And all it is is we call it a pinch. Sometimes you prevent them from doing what they're doing. They may go to jail for a little while. Uh, they may have to pay a fine. And eventually, that's why we have the, uh, you know, you get three violations in five years. We just revoke your license. Yeah. You can no longer own a firearm if you get a felony. And these guys got a felony. They can't hunt again. No firearms. Done. Took their vehicles. and. But it was just, it was early on in my career. And um, when you get uh, that, that kind of backing from the district attorney, from the judicial system that we convict these people uh, that are the one percenters, that's when you really start feeling like that phone call I made, that guy jeans, watching that guy catch all those fish and saying, hey, I'm going to go call the game warden. He's going to come down here and he's going to fix this. It's empowering, and it helps us do our job. Mm-hmm. And, um, but the chase is fun. You know, yeah. You're never, you're never going to get 100% uh, you know, conviction. We're not going to catch everybody. And my dad said something to me one day when I was voicing my frustration to him. He says, you know, son, because of the poachers, like I used to be, you have a job. Be grateful for that. Totally. Yeah.
2: Um, I have another story I want to tell you, but I'm sure you'll be able to elaborate on it, and that is uh, Marijuana Grows. Um, I was up a creek. I won't name the creek, but I was up a creek (laughs) and uh, hiking up with my clients. Yeah. And um, we were way back in there and um, off the trail. When, when I go, hey, let's go around this way, and we went off off the trail and going up the mountain in a different direction than it normally go, and came across a, a camp way back in there, and the fire was going, and, and uh, it looks like, you know, people had just left or something, you know, and I told my clients, let's just back out of here slowly, you guys, let's just kind of move out of here, and so we, we did, we went back down the same way that we came, and so I uh, came down and uh told one of the the forest service guys, and they actually went up there and and busted some marijuana guys up there, some guys growing some stuff up there and many times i've I've been in the in the Kern Canyon and come across little um PVC All right. um I don't know what those are called like it's uh the Flex pipe or whatever that's going poly, down to the poly yeah pipe. yeah poly pipe going down to the river. In different situations and stuff. And I, from what I've heard in the in the past, is that the Sequoia National Forest is a is a hotbed for for marijuana grows. Um, I'm not sure how it is now that now that marijuana is legal. But um, did you run across a lot of that stuff in your career?
1: Yeah, sure did. We were actually number one in the nation for marijuana grows here in the Sequoia yeah. National Forest.
2: Yeah, that's crazy. Did you run into a lot of that stuff, or did you have to get cool yeah. off and?
1: Now, quite a few, you know, I would yeah. team up with, uh, you know, the Forest Service LEOs, you mm-hmm. know, uh, the BLM, um, got into, uh, a couple, uh, situations where I've, you know, been shot at. <laughs> really? Yeah. Scary um, stuff, man. Yeah, it's very scary. Yeah. Yeah. My last one was a, just a, a few months before I retired. I was by myself with eight guys and crazy. Yeah, it is crazy. That's and, scary stuff. And, uh, when we st- uh, first started getting into marijuana, I actually had some hunters, you know, they asked me, it's like, hey, um, you guys are so spread so thin as game wardens, when you start getting into the marijuana business? But you guys have you know right. other people to check, and I mean, it's a valid question. Mm-hmm. And I would take a little bit of time, you know, with those that, you know, it's like, hey, we're, got, we're trying to protect deer up here, you know, and people are killing all these quail out of here, you know, it's, they're killing all these dove, and when are you guys gonna start doing real game warden work? And it's like, well, Let's think about this for a moment. Mm-hmm. You know, game wardens, uh, they protect the habitat and the waters and mm-hmm. what have you. And uh, let me describe a scene for you what a marijuana garden looks like. There's trash everywhere. They put poison around the perimeter, most of them, um, that kills the bears because the bears are coming in because they smell the food. And whenever the, uh, the food drop off doesn't occur, then guess what you're eating? You're eating what nature provides. And sometimes nature happens to walk by on four legs and it's very opportunistic, and so guess what gets poached? Right. And so some of the gardens that we went into, we often found uh, not only the poison, but with the evidence of poached animals. And when the crop is done, all that stuff gets, you know, left there. And so now you have illegal herbicides, pesticides that now leach into the waterways that eventually, you know, leach down the, the, uh, the streams and then into our lakes and uh, people are i think are now starting to see even in lake isabella you know people ask me they're like what's going on with this algae bloom here i've never ever seen it that bad and i'm thinking well mm-hmm. i just wonder if the combined effects mm-hmm. of all of these tributaries where the marijuana grows like you said mm-hmm. and you're not we're not alone there's other people that are wandering upon these gardens mm-hmm. that are just left
2: mm-hmm. and uh do you know um you said the herbicides you know i, I and I've seen, you know, just a regular everyday water bottle, like in a meadow,
1: and it has like... It's pink. Yes. It's it, Ferdinand. Yeah. Is that what it is? Oh, yeah. And it it's super poisonous. It's banned in California. It's actually banned in the United States, and it's it's actually a pesticide that's generated in Mexico. It's highly effective, and
2: yeah. And they put that, well, for one, they put that on the marijuana, right? Or the, the plants itself, or yeah,
1: and sometimes at the base. And this is you know this is something that uh, was addressed by the game wardens. Uh, you know, a couple of years into our marijuana interdiction efforts, like hey, helicopter comes flying over. We're loading up all this marijuana and all this stuff is airborne now. Right. Where's the PPE? What are we What are we doing here? Right. We're not just chopping dope. Right. We're people. You know. Right. And right. uh, so like any other, you know, lesson, it comes with uh, experience and education and knowledge. And it's like, well, what what is this stuff? So now we we had uh, later on in my career, we had an environmental scientist coming in and doing, uh, you know, looking at the site and addressing what's there. And, uh, you know, the. Ten thousand pound elephant in the room, it's like, hey, are we going to do a site survey before we go in? And just before I left fishing game, I was actually discussing with some of my partners. I go, "You know what we should do is we should actually have drones and we should go in with infrared and we should do a site survey and find out how many live bodies do we have in there, so if we know we're outnumbered, where they are strategically placed around the garden great idea and not only that but um we should probably have some kind of monitoring equipment. I'm not sure what kind of, you know, accuracy you would get off an airborne, you know, collecting unit uh, for doing a site survey and trying to specify what's actually airborne down there. But, you know, we have families. We're people too, you know. Right. We have we have eyes and lungs and and what's happening when we go in and for, for what, you know. Some of these guys, they, uh, you know, you're still filling out the paperwork and they're walking out the door.
2: Right. And that, that's, that herbicide is like super, super poisonous. Like you, you, I've heard you can confirm this, but like if you touch it, it, it can make you really sick.
1: It burns. Yeah. yeah. And if it gets airborne, gets into your lungs, Check I don't want out. to say, I don't really know that much about the toxicity, Yeah. but someone said that, you know, if you look at the, uh, the toxicity of fentanyl and then the fur, dan, uh, they're kind of in the same ballpark. Uh-huh. Now I don't, this is just what I heard when I was, you know, working in the field and that was enough for me to say, "You know what I'm done you know going into gardens and chopping stuff up and and fishing game may actually have their own uh, our fish and wildlife they now have their own dedicated uh you know marijuana task force do they and uh, you know these guys are they're trained up um and they're trained for what's actually the worst thing that could go wrong you know not only people wise firepower wise um you know, PP PPE, you know, private mm-hmm. protection, uh, personal equipment. But, yeah. How, how
2: big were these plants that you would see when you go in there?
1: Um, it's actually one of the pictures I deleted that I sent you. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I can tell you that they're You're like forests. Yeah. Uh, they, they would be anywhere from, uh, I would say, six to ten feet tall. And, oh, my God. And some of the biggest gardens we went into, they had the drying sheds. And they would have the, the tarps over them and they'd have strings and all the dope is just hanging. And uh, then they had the sifting screens and just, you know, inches and feet of, of marijuana. How many plants do you think like when you went into a big grow that they would grow in there? Um, well, you know, to, to kind of um, wrap our mind around it, let's go duffel bags. Okay. I would say the average garden. So it,
2: just, the, just the buds and the. Just
1: the buds. Yeah, and yeah. all that. The so, duffel bags. So let's say uh, some of the gardens that I went into, just looking at the sheer number, anywhere from um, six to 10, maybe 15 duffel bags full of dope. And one of the LEOs that I worked with, uh, we went onto this trail and it was four miles away from the nearest road. And I go, this is just amazing to me. These guys are humping all of these poly pipe and these emitters and this fertilizer and what have you. He Says Terry, think about it. You have ten to fifteen thousand dollars on your back. You and I are chopping dope. Imagine we're the uh, you know the ones that are growing. It's just going to take us eight hours tonight to hike out of here with this dope and offload it with the vehicle. Would you sign up for that? I go ten to fifteen thousand dollars in a bag. So what I what I that's I've heard, more than what a trapper makes. Yeah, doing bobcats, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, what I what I've heard is some of the folks that are out on these grows, and maybe you can confirm this or not, that they are somehow connected to the cartel in some way. That they something happened, and they had to come here and grow these crops as kind of a payback to the cartel is that have you heard that
1: Well, I don't know so much about that yeah because
2: um, that cause that seems
1: you know it's been rumored that yeah. some some of these uh these guys are uh kidnapped and uh, yeah. held for you know ransom hey, if you don't bring out you know four ten fifteen duffel bags, then this is what's going to happen and it, it's you know the the public peering through the window into mm-hmm. the the illegal. Um, workings of what's happening, not only with you know wildlife, but but drugs and what have you. They're very uncomfortable truths. And when I first started working with the army as a crew chief, flying on helicopters, uh, I got into marijuana gardens with the DEA, and the things I saw and what they told us was happening was just mind numbing. It's like they're actually doing this to other people. Yeah, for a green plant. right oh no not for the green plant for the green money right so like i said early in the podcast follow the money and you'll find the evil Mm -hmm. and there is tremendous evil in this world you know the root of all evil is money
2: right what's amazing is that these guys are able to grow these plants that big without being discovered for that long right right?
1: especially with satellite imagery being what it is but there i think it just comes down to sheer manpower and not only that but um you know, if you and I go fishing, we want to catch the big fish. Now, we can catch a little fish all day, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know why that's so human nature, but it's almost like you think about Ruli Giuliani, you know, back in New York, and he's like broken window. You jump a turnstile in New York City, you're getting a ticket. Broken window, if there's one window broken on this house, guess what's going to happen a week later? All the windows are going to be broken because there's no consequence for you and I throwing a rock at it. And there's no consequence for you and I jumping the, the turnstile to make it to the subway. And if there's no consequence, that's why I said early on, my dad did 80 days at Lardo for poaching a deer. Right. And I've actually, one of the, my biggest pet peeves, and you asked about the tickets that I wrote. Yeah. Uh, one of my favorite tickets to, to write was litter of state waters. I would watch people litter the waters. I would watch people go to the bathroom in the river, mm-hmm. in the lake. Mm-hmm. Um, um, you know, peeing in a pool. All right. It's a big pool. I get it. But the other. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a reason why we're supposed to go up on shore and bury what, right. because there's something about, you know, the um, just the, the <laughs> organics uh, sure. that's being produced.
2: Sure. You would think everybody would get that, you
1: know, you would, you would think, but and <laughs> if, and if the penalty fits the crime, it's like I've told people before. I said, you know, you see the sign alongside the road, $1,000 fine for litter. Not once was I ever um, told by the district attorney or the court, he was fined $1,000 for littering the river. What's more precious than our waters? Right. The crime, the punishment.
2: Yeah, I got another picture of you here uh, holding a pretty good-sized buck. What's that? What's that story all about?
1: Well, that story there is, uh, yeah, this deer um, got snow on the ground. Yep. This was during the G6.
2: So that's probably out of season then right there.
1: Well, it's not out of season, but oh. you told a story about a, a fisherman that had a foot on top of a fish and he was culling. Yeah. So during the G6, which is a nine-day deer hunt, it's a trophy deer hunt, uh, starts the second Saturday of December every year up upriver here. Okay. And so what happens is in my career, I know of um, four, possibly five deer. And this was the last one. It wasn't big enough for him. He probably shot the bigger one that was next to him. Oh. He left it. Oh. And when I came around the corner and I saw the body language, the you know when, when you're sitting in school mm-hmm. and the teacher is up on the blackboard And the teacher leaves for a moment. And then the principal walks in, you know, something's up. Yeah. When I drove up, the principal was in the classroom Uh and they're like, it got quiet and it got weird. And I had a game warden tell me one time, he says, Terry, I want you to think about this. Every time you roll up on a situation when the behavior changes, something's up. But if the behavior remains the same, they keep casting, they keep fishing, they keep drinking their soda, they keep conversing, it's cool. But the moment they see you, and the head goes down, they start to walk away, or they find a new activity to suddenly, uh, you know, indulge themselves with. Something's up. Something's up. So on this one here, something was up. Uh huh. Never solved it. Oh, he didn't. Never solved it.
2: They just kept denying.
1: So what That's I a did. A nice one right there. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of drug him out to the road. A couple guys roll up. Dude, it's a nice buck what's up with the buck? I go, well, here's the deal. i never shot a buck that big. That's a big, oh, I'd love to have that on my go. Really, you got a tag? Yeah. All right. So the other two guys are like, wait a minute. It's only the second day of the hunt. You're going to throw your tag on that thing? I go, either that or it's going to go to waste. Yep, one of the hunters threw his tag on it for me. Uh, right on. So... It's now hanging on somebody's wall. It's got the meat in this freezer.
2: Is it, this one seems like it's a, a little bit bigger than than normal. Is that that's a pretty big one, right?
1: It is a big one. Yeah, and that's a, a fairly typical of the G six. Uh, you know, the deer that come down after the snows in the high country. You know, they they're starting to rut up. Um, they're getting uh, not near as wary because of the rut, and they want to breed, and. Uh, really the last thing on their mind is running from a hunter or you know, they really don't want to forage, they just want to breed. And that becomes the focus. So these deer uh, become easy targets, uh, especially when we, uh, we have weather. I first one of the first years I was up here, I think it was either the second year, I was working with Shane, G6, uh-huh. and we had heavy snows up off Sherman Pass uh, coming over onto Cherry Hill Road, about two feet of snow. I remember because we almost got stuck. And there was a line of people uh, there at Calkins Flat around the corner from McNally's. And I pulled up there, and I was amazed at how many people were watching the deer come down the hill. And there was guys actually having conversations. You know, it's like, hey, there's a three-by-four, th- you know, three three-by-three. it's like, oh, look at the one on the right. It was almost like walking into the store and squeeze- squeezing the, you know, the bread to find out which one's fresh. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, they were, they were picking their bucks you know it's like oh there's a nice one interesting yeah huh. but that that's uh, that's typical of a of a deer that has moved down from the high country you can see the amount of snow that's around it um but fortunately um that buck wasn't wasted but unfortunately um 3 of the 4 I can't remember I, I'm thinking the 5th one was uh maybe legal but um they were wasted yep Waste of game, wow! Which is a huge violation,
2: right? Wow! So, um, what's the craziest story that you've ever you've ever had? If you have one, or are these? I mean, is there some some that you can't talk about? I'm sure, but is there any any crazy stories that you can think of that you you could end with? Uh. Offhand, one of the things I, 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 while you're thinking about um, that is. Uh, I had a couple of uh, fish and game biologists in on the podcast, and we're talking about all the animals and stuff. It was a really great podcast. And um, We started talking about uh, the elk that have kind of come into the to the valley. Have you heard about this?
1: Yeah, I got a picture of one. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah, cool. during the fire camp, there was three of them. Oh, was that you that got the picture? Oh, no, that wasn't me. Oh,
2: okay, because I saw that picture too. Where, where was the, where was that? Uh, where was it was that camp?
1: between Camp 9 and Juniper oh. Point. Oh, sweet. Yeah, they were going north up the... Uh, Uh, north fork of the Kern nice man in the uh in the willows
2: have you ever seen that before and
1: you know uh years ago I had a guy uh, he said hey I was in the back of this valley over you know uh Erskine Creek area and oh yeah I think there's can you look at this picture of the scat I'm looking at it look at the prints I'm like where was this taken Mm -hmm. like I've lived up here all my life I've never seen that yeah. So I'm a little suspect, but I know the guy. Yeah. Went to elementary school with this guy. Uh-huh. And he's a big hunter. And I'm like, that's elk. Yeah. He goes, yeah. I thought so. I go, yeah, let's go take a look. And he goes, oh, this is weeks ago. And I'm like, okay. And then I started hearing reports. Uh huh. And then.
2: How long ago was that?
1: Oh, shoot. I would say eight years ago. Okay. Yeah, eight, nine years ago. Uh-huh. So they've come over from Tahne, crossed mm-hmm. the fifty eight. It's <laughs> crazy. And uh they've come through the uh, you know, the hatchapies the, the uh kinda intersect with the uh the Paiutes and you know, kinda into the Scoties and
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I guess one uh, came into the Kernville golf course here too.
1: I didn't hear about that one. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I saw the picture it was a female sitting in there. Hmm eating that's not cool
1: i know it is cool coolest thing ever um my fear is the one percenters (laughs) totally right
2: yeah for sure um
1: you think of any story or um
2: probably have a zillion
1: of them i do you know it's actually um after my helicopter crash i sit down it took me 10 years and i kind of i wrote some stuff down and it's like i'm gonna publish this one day you should and then, um, the life of a game warden, you know, that good book, man. It's like, I was going to do California game warden. Cause I, mm-hmm. I read saber tooth, the legendary adventures of a Horn, uh, you know, adventures of a legendary, legendary game warden, saber tooth. Mm-hmm. And just the way, um, uh, oh, his last name escapes me now. Uh, Terry, um, uh, wrote, wrote this book and they're just short little stories. And, um, you know, because I do live locally, you know, I got to be very careful. You know, sure. I don't, I don't want to shame anybody. Sure. And, uh, like I shame my dad. He's the reason I became a game warden, <laughs> but he was a poacher. <laughs> That's funny, man. Yeah. Um, uh, but you know, I would say, um, probably one of the, uh, not the scariest, but one of the most rewarding things that happened with me is, uh, one of the cases that I really, I put some sweat into is, uh. I I was in an area, and I knew something was up. I saw one of the guys that was affiliated with the former bear poaching ring, and I'm like, what is this guy doing up here? And then I see him again. And so I make a right, and I go up this road, and I contact three people that are coming down there, obviously, in a hurry. And something I always did is I always tried to put people at ease and let them know you're, you're not the focus of the investigation. By the way, I'm looking for the two guys in the red truck. I'm always looking for the two guys in the red truck. And people that have (laughs) uh, actually known me, you know, it's like, you ever catch those guys in the red Red truck? truck. (laughs) Yeah. And so, and whenever they realize they're not the focus of the investigation, then they kind of relax a little bit. It's like, where are you guys going? Oh, we're going down the hill. I'm like, okay. So they leave and they go down. And now it's a guessing game. Did they go left or they go right? Well, fortunately, I guessed right. And they went right. So I go right. And I see a guy sitting up on the hill and my scanner's going off. Hey, I don't see the game warden. Hey, by the way, the game warden went up this road here. said he was looking for two guys in a red truck. I'm like, something's up. You could hear that. Oh, yeah. And they're like, hey, man, by the way, uh, if we say tally-ho, get the tree and switches off the dogs. I'm like, got them. <laughs> now I know what's up, uh-huh. tree and switches. That uh-huh. way they can identify where the dogs are on the bear. So I'm watching this guy up on the hill, and then he's got a rover going back and forth on the road waiting for me to come down. So I got out of my truck, packed some water, it took me four hours. Dogs are baying. I can hear them getting closer, closer. Nightfall is now up on me. It's raining. I get to the base of the canyon, and there's somebody sitting there in a truck. Truck's not running. Uh, windows are fogged up, but the, the windows are cracked a little bit, and I can hear them on the radio. Hey, we're coming out. You know, they're checking with the rover. Yeah, I haven't seen him in four hours. Not sure where he is. Okay, we're coming out. I stand up right beside the window. Stay gay Morton. Put your hands up. Okay, drop your hand slowly, open the door. So she opens the door. I grab the radio and I'm like, all right, so what's going on here? And uh so we have a little conversation. And now they're on the radio. Hey. She's not talking to him, and they're like, something's up. And so, unfortunately, I can't leave her, so I can't go to where they are. So they send out the scout to come check the vehicle, and uh, he comes out, and I'm like, all right, here's the deal. You know, I cuff him up, set him on the ground, and uh, the other three guys, they kind of come out, and the one guy's got the bear meat part of it and the gallbladder, and he's with a client. Oh. And I'm like, all right. And the one guy that's back behind, I can see him trying to get the collars off the dogs, you know, the train switches. And I'm like, hey, sitting here watching you, it's destruction of evidence, misdemeanor, going to go to jail. It's your choice. What What about the the client? Uh well,
2: he gets everybody. Hurt to, every, everybody. Everybody every, goes.
1: Everybody goes. Okay. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> goes. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And. Wouldn't you know it, the guy in the white, oh, the guy in the vehicle shows up. Uh-huh. Hi, what are you doing? Oh, I'm just driving down the road. I go, oh, no, you're not. Here's the deal. Step on out. So nabbed him, nabbed the client, nabbed the ga- uh, guy, got the training switches. I was cold, hungry. I bet. Wet, but happy. Uh-huh. And it's like, you not only poach this bear. You're using tran switches. You got the bladder. You wasted the meat. What are you doing? Yeah. So not a wild story, but probably no, it's one, probably one of the uh, more rewarding.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't think a lot of people, and hopefully now after this podcast, they, they realize, you know, like what you guys do out there, you know, and what you did out there and protecting the environment and the animals and the fish and, you know, and quite honestly, I think there should be more of you guys, especially in this area, um, protecting um, this area as, as much as possible. But I just feel like you guys, there's not enough of you guys. But um, thanks, man. Thanks for, for thanks doing for, it.
1: Thanks for inviting me.
2: Yeah, yeah, man. It was awesome. Learned a lot. And, um, you know, if, if somebody wants to be a, a game warden, they get started just by how would they get called? Who would they calling?
1: Uh, so what I'll do is uh, let me provide a phone number here. Uh, yeah. They actually have a hiring. Um, That'd be cool. Yeah. So they have a hiring lieutenant. And this is uh, something that I printed out just before I retired. Um, the phone number is area code 916-653-7726. And if you're interested in, um, you know, looking, you can go on the website of www. Uh, dfw.ca.gov uh, dot dot and uh you would have to complete a standard uh California application and uh let's see here there's actually one on a website uh it's http colon forward slash forward slash www.sam p is in paul b is in boy.ca.gov/jobsgen dot dot slash forms rd.cfm i'm not sure why they don't abbreviate but yeah i know that's kind of long but just go on the fish and wildlife department of fish and wildlife website perfect and that should help them
2: awesome terry thank you so much for being here thank you i really appreciate it and thank you all for listening to this podcast and uh, we'll catch you guys next time this was season two episode one with terry mullen